This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 7. Nashville Needed One More Out there in the spotlight, you're a million miles away. Every ounce of energy you try to give away. As the sweat pours out your body, like the music that you play. Bob Seger, turn the page. One, Kansas City. I became a full-time resident of Nashville, Tennessee in February of 2013. I landed a job working for a company called Innovative Percussion during the day. It didn't pay that much, but it was a fun job and was flexible enough to allow me to play an occasional gig should I get one. I was also busy hitting the pavement at night and on weekends to try and meet as many people in town as possible and to find any kind of work I could involving music. As I mentioned previously, I had landed a gig playing electric and acoustic guitar and singing high harmony vocals with country artist Chuck Wicks. Chuck wasn't touring full-time or even remotely close to it, but there were enough gigs and Opry performances on the books to keep me feeling like I didn't make a poor choice, jettisoning my old life in Gainesville, Florida for Nashville. My first gig with Chuck also happened to be my very first gig traveling in a real, honest-to-goodness tour bus. We were slated to play Kansas City. I was still feeling just a bit like a fish out of water, not only stepping into a new role as a sideman, but also stepping into a role as a sideman playing country music. Music is music, but the basic vocabulary was a bit different, and it wasn't as intuitive for me as playing alternative rock or modern pop hits on an acoustic guitar. I knew I'd get the hang of it eventually, but I also knew it would take me some time to get there. I got along well with the guys in Chuck's band, who were all more or less part of a large rotating cast of people that would play with him based on availability. My friend Chris Nix was also the band leader, so I didn't feel completely alone. He did a great job of coaching me through my first Nashville touring gig. The bassist was a fellow Rochester, New York native named Pete. Once he discovered that it was my first gig ever on a tour bus, he decided he was going to give me a good old-fashioned hazing. I believe his exact words were, Oh, your ass is mine. We had a full band rehearsal with Chuck and the band the same day we'd be leaving for the gig at a rehearsal facility called Soundcheck in Nashville. It was consequently the very first time I met Chuck. 
Rehearsal went well, but I could tell Chuck had his eyes and ears all over me to make sure I was up to snuff. Chris and my friend Tom Hurst had recommended me for the gig, and Chuck trusted both of them. I had also done my homework, as always, and was as ready and prepared as I could possibly be. By the time the bus had pulled into Kansas City in the early part of the next day, Pete, the bassist, had somehow managed to procure a large bottle of Jack Daniels, which he tauntingly waved in my face as we were getting ready to load into the venue that morning. Soundcheck went off without a hitch, and we spent the better part of the day hanging out and exploring a bit of the local area before our set. I think Chuck could sense that I was a little nervous about the show, but he was kind enough to pull me aside on the bus shortly before showtime. He said, Listen, man, you're doing a really great job. If you weren't, I would have told you already. Let's just have a pre-show drink together and have a great set, okay? And with that, he opened up the aforementioned bottle of Jack and poured us a couple Jack and Cokes, and we raised them up and drank them down. I had developed a bad habit in my Gainesville solo acoustic show days of drinking during every performance. I was only ever too drunk to actually play on two different occasions during all those years. Both of those times, I swore I'd never let it happen again, and it didn't. Having said this, however, I was a professional drinker with an above-average tolerance for alcohol, and I'm positive that I thought I was in better shape than I actually was. I went on stage that night in Kansas City with another full solo cup of Jack and Coke to sip during the set. My plan was to have just enough to calm my nerves. What I wasn't prepared for happened during one of the later songs in the set, a raucous, upbeat, bluesy country tune called Bar Love. The chorus lyrics are, Your dress says come and get me. Your glass is getting empty. I know you haven't met me. Let's do a shot. And after the last line, Chuck would prompt the audience to yell, SHOT! It was a fun crowd participation call and response type of thing. When we got to the breakdown section, the band started vamping and Chuck started talking to the audience. In my ear monitors on the talkback mic, which was only audible to the band, I heard, Michael, put your fucking guitar down and come to the front of the stage. I had been so focused in on playing and singing my parts correctly that I didn't notice Pete the bassist grabbing the now half-full bottle of Jack from offstage and handing it to Chuck. Over the mic, he said, All right, Kansas City, I'd like to introduce you to our newest member. This is Michael. When I sing the line, let's do a shot, you're all going to say, shot. And Michael here is going to drink straight out of this bottle of Jack for three seconds each time. And with that, he handed me the bottle of Jack, grinning devilishly, and proceeded to lead the crowd in the chorus. The first time it came around, your dress says come and get me, your glass is getting empty, I know you haven't met me, let's do a shot. And when the audience of three to four hundred people all yelled, SHOT! I raised the bottle to my lips and took as big a chug as I could possibly muster. As Chuck counted to three, I noticed our drummer, Marcus Finney, purposely slowing down the count to prolong my drink. This happened for several more rounds, and by the time we were on my fourth and final swig of Jack and rounds of everyone yelling shot, I had stopped really drinking that much because Marcus had slowed down his drums to almost a crawl by the last one. I had finished nearly half of what was left in the bottle by now. The crowd was going completely wild, 
and I noticed a couple really tall guys in cowboy hats up front that were clearly very impressed with my ability to drink Jack straight from the bottle. So much so that they raised their hands to fist bump me with nothing but pure, unadulterated respect in their eyes. Little did they know how much of a mess I was going to be in a relatively short amount of time. To make matters worse, country artist Brett Eldridge was in the crowd that night with his guitarist and backing vocalist, a guy named Brandon Ray, who consequently had held my slot in Chuck's band not long before me. Nothing like playing a set in front of the previous guy to make you feel even more like you're under the microscope. I was nervous enough without that. I was almost positive that Brandon was probably analyzing all the tiniest nuances of my performance. He wasn't. No one is ever paying that much attention. I would end up going on to play guitar and sing backup in Brandon's band several years later. Brett Eldridge got up and shared a mic with me on a cover version of The Joker by Steve Miller Band as we closed out our set. I was feeling absolutely no pain by now. As was customary, Chuck was doing a meet and greet after the show as we loaded out. These things often involved mostly hundreds of women and young ladies lined up to get a minute or two of time with Chuck, all giddy with anticipation. I had never seen anything like it before this. At times I thought to myself, this is what it must have been like being in Elvis's backing band. It was like this wherever we went, coast to coast in every city and at every festival, big and small. I was trying to dodge Pete the bassist because I knew he had it in for me, but he found me and grabbed me once I had packed all my stuff and said, Okay, rookie, you're coming with me. He had started calling me rookie as soon as he found out that I'd never been on a tour bus before. Despite the fact that I know full well that I had toured and done hundreds more shows than almost anyone in that band up to that point, I was about as far from a rookie as you can get. Pete started walking me past the women lined up for the meet and greet. He would introduce me to small groups of them one at a time saying, I'll get you ladies a couple extra minutes with Chuck if you buy this guy a shot. They'd look at me and say, oh hey, you're the shot guy. And then one of them would leave the group and return with a shot a few minutes later, which I would then take, and we'd move down the line. This went on for a while until I just couldn't drink anymore. I could barely stand up or even see straight. Pete then thought it would be funny to bring me down to where the tour bus was parked and have me wait there, leaning against a large road case. You stay down here and keep an eye on the gear, rookie. We'll bring the rest of the cases down. Staying in one place at this point was fine by me. Where I was standing also happened to be near the exit of the club, so every group of people that was leaving saw me without most of my faculties leaning against a large road case next to the tour bus. Most of them recognized me, and they'd all just say, Hey, it's the shot guy! The rest of the night is kind of a blur from there. Big surprise. I remember bits and pieces of getting on the bus and finishing the very last bit of Jack in the Bottle, but only after much goading from Pete and the rest of the guys, before completely passing out in my bunk on the trip home. I had been properly and officially hazed and welcomed into the prestigious family of Nashville Sidemen. The next morning, I awoke in a confused state, only to realize that I was still fully drunk. The nine-hour bus trip had felt to me like about an hour. As I got off the bus to look for my car, 
Thankfully, I had the presence of mind to know that there was no way in hell I was going to be driving myself anywhere anytime soon. Chris Nix was looking out for me, as always. He said, Okay, man, I'll have my wife come back with me later to grab your car, but right now, you're coming with me back to my place. So I hopped into Chris's car with him, and we had scarcely made it to the interstate when I needed him to pull over at the side of the on-ramp so I could puke. I ended up sleeping, or rather passing out, in Chris and his wife's spare bedroom for the better part of almost another nine hours before I felt well enough to emerge from the room. They had been kind enough to place a large bucket and some Gatorade by the side of the bed when I got there earlier, both of which I utilized. I made my way out to their back porch that evening where they were both sitting. They had been in and out checking on me all day, and at one point they had actually debated on bringing me to the hospital, but apparently I had taken enough of a turn for the better to satisfy them that I wasn't going to die in their house. I managed to choke down a donut and was able to get myself home that night in my own car, which they had picked up and brought to their house as promised. I found a souvenir from the weekend that had been placed in the back seat of my car when I got home. It was the empty bottle of Jack Daniels from the night before, autographed in black Sharpie by every member of the band, including Chuck and Pete, the bassist, who had been the captain of the hazing team. Next to Pete's signature, written in bold letters, was simply the word, Rookie. Two, St. Croix. One day I got a call from Chuck asking me if I had any interest in going with him down to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands to do two acoustic shows for a radio station event. He told me that Chris Nix would also be accompanying us down there to round things out and make it an acoustic trio thing. The three of us ended up doing a whole lot of shows with this lineup over the years, and it always went over really well. We even headlined a show at a street festival in Sacramento, California at one point, following a Motley Crue tribute band, and we actually held our own in front of a rowdy crowd of thousands. Chuck explained that these two gigs in St. Croix would not pay anything. However, the flights to and from and our accommodations for three days would all be taken care of, and we'd be staying at an all-inclusive resort, so all our food and drinks would be comped as well. There were even some planned group excursions on the island that would be on the radio station's dime, too. Free vacation in the Virgin Islands? Play two short sets? Let me think about that one for a second. Um, yeah. Around this time, my personal life was in the process of falling apart. The girl that I had been dating in Gainesville and I were in a brutal on-again, off-again cycle. So the idea of a short getaway to a tropical location with excursions sun and sand, music, and free food and drinks to clear my head sounded like just what the doctor ordered. By the time Chris, Chuck, and I had landed in Miami for our layover flight on the way to St. Croix, my girlfriend had dropped the hammer on me, via text no less, and we were officially broken up, and for good this time. I was distraught and really sad. I knew that I needed to turn my gaze toward the new life in front of me, but I still had one foot in the past in Gainesville, and it was a really painful and scary headspace to be in. I was determined to make the most of this trip, however, and I soldiered on the best that I could. Chuck Wicks is one of the funniest and most quick-witted people that I've ever met. He oozes personality, and he knows how to entertain. He and I once played an acoustic duo set on a festival in front of thousands of people, 
sandwiched right between two major full band country acts, and he was able to hold the crowd masterfully using his sense of humor between songs. I can't overstate just how difficult a thing that this is to do. It helped that Chuck was talented and good-looking, but the humor and personality also counted for a lot. I don't think I'm talking out of school when I tell you that Chuck absolutely used to love making people uncomfortable, in a funny way, especially people he had just met. When I played my first acoustic duo show with him at a place in Florida, we were sharing a condo with a few of his friends. One of his signature moves, as I would find out, was using the bathroom and leaving the door wide open, all the while making overly exaggerated grunting and groaning sounds like he was really pushing to get one out. He wanted a reaction from whoever was around, and he always got one. It was all in good fun, and it was always hilarious. Never a dull moment. The first minute I had walked into the condo on that Florida trip, Chuck had just gotten out of the shower. As I walked down the hallway in the condo to drop my bags off in the room where I'd be staying, he walked toward me slowly, wearing only a towel. He then jokingly whipped his towel off and held it taut against either wall of the hallway, completely blocking my passage while standing there totally naked on the other side. He just stared at me without saying a word, waiting for me to break. I was definitely uncomfortable, as I really hadn't spent that much time with him at this point, but I was also folded over laughing. It was really fucking funny. I'm sure Chuck would have no problem copying to all these things if he were here right now also. Our entire St. Croix group included Chuck, Chris, myself, a country artist named Greg Bates and his wife, a country musician who was also a comedian named Joe Denham, and a female country artist whose name escapes me and her sister. Our drink of choice, as suggested by Joe Denham, who was the self-appointed master of ceremonies and the absolute life of the party, was something called a painkiller. Funny, they never really killed any of my pain, and I drank a lot of them on that trip. A painkiller, if you don't know, is a rum cocktail that is often associated with the British Virgin Islands, which is its place of origin. It is a blend of rum with four parts pineapple juice, one part cream of coconut, and one part orange juice, well shaken and served on the rocks with a generous amount of fresh grated nutmeg on top. One serving may be made with two, three, or four ounces of rum. They were delicious. And dangerous. I had a pretty rough first morning emotionally in St. Croix. My breakup had finally settled in, and instead of going on an island excursion like I probably should have, I opted instead to go downstairs to the hotel pool bar and order food and as many drinks as I could put in my body until I didn't feel sad anymore. It was an all-inclusive resort, so all I had to do was tell the guy, keep him coming, and sign it to our room. I was in the middle of paradise, and I couldn't enjoy it fully. Our first show, which would be a Nashville-style writer's round at a casino, wasn't until the second night on the island, so day one was wide open. This wasn't necessarily a good thing. The only thing we had planned was a dinner at around 6 p.m. that night, hosted by the radio station at a restaurant nearby. Chris, who I was sharing a hotel room with, had gone on the island excursion with most of the rest of the crew, and Chuck had gone on a deep-sea fishing excursion. I was at the pool downing painkiller after painkiller and getting more and more drunk by the hour. 
By the time Chuck had returned at around two or three that afternoon, he found me drunk and sitting by the pool bar with sunglasses on, trying to hide the fact that I'd been crying a little. I was a mess. All I remember is that he noticed that I was upset and asked me what was wrong. When I explained to him that I was newly single as of the night before, he was actually very sweet and very kind to me. He told me a little bit about his high-profile breakup with actress Julianne Hough, who he was engaged to, and he told me that things would get better. It was a rare sentimental moment, and I really appreciated his effort to comfort me. Soon after, the rest of the crew arrived and all eventually joined me by the pool bar, where we continued to drink more painkillers. My mood still wasn't that great, but I really appreciated the company and I was making the best of a bad situation. By the time our rides arrived to take us to the radio station dinner, I was a lot more than half in the bag, as they say. I probably should have skipped dinner and just went straight to bed, but I knew getting some food into my system was a really good idea, and I wasn't about to miss out on anything else. I had reached the point of, fuck it, I'm having fun. There were, of course, more drinks at dinner. I think I switched over to beer at that point in the evening, but that also wasn't doing me any favors. It was the equivalent of trying to put out a forest fire with a newspaper. Somewhere during the course of the day, and I'm not sure when this happened, I somehow agreed to go with everyone on a kayaking excursion in a bioluminescent bay. Now let me explain something to you. Aside from spiders, the ocean is one of my biggest fears. I love being near the ocean or by the ocean. What I don't love is being in the ocean. And I also like boats. I'll hang out on a boat any day. But you won't catch me more than ankle or maybe calf deep in the ocean. And you definitely won't get me in for a swim. I'm not sure exactly where this comes from, but I believe it's because I saw the movie Jaws when I was way too young. Also, fuck the ocean. As Chris and I were climbing into a car driven by some locals drafted to bring us to the bioluminescent bay kayaking excursion, the guy driving looked at me and for some reason said, man, you look like you need a hit off of my weed vape. I'll say this, I've definitely smoked a little weed in my day. I've also taken edibles, but it was never really my thing. I would partake, but usually only if it was offered and it was free and I was in a particular mood. Well, I was definitely in a particular mood on that night. So I foolishly agreed, and without hesitation, I took a giant hit off of this guy's vape pen. Within minutes, I was now not only wasted from drinking all day, I was also incredibly high. And I added insult to my already injured psychological state by taking a second giant hit just as we got to the spot where we'd be doing our kayaking. The whole group arrived in separate cars at around the same time at a small cove and made our way down to the beach where we were met by two twin brothers, both very tall white guys with long dreadlocks. By this time, I was completely messed up. I had no awareness of what was coming next. The brothers jokingly said that they hadn't lost anyone on an excursion yet, but they needed us to pay attention to a few safety rules. I was only able to half pay attention but I remember them saying something about there being safe places to get out of the kayaks to swim and unsafe places to get out of the kayaks to swim. And they would let us know when and where that was. 
swim? I'm not going to fucking swim anywhere. If they knew just how high and drunk I was, they would have probably made me stay back on shore. Chris and I paired up, and it hit me as we climbed into our two-person kayak and began paddling that we were, in fact, rowing against a very strong current out to sea. This was the equivalent of one of my worst nightmares. Chris noted my condition, of course, and realized that I'd be mostly useless as a rowing partner in the event of any kind of emergency. He consequently shared my intense dislike of the ocean and half-jokingly said to me on the way out, Don't capsize us whatever you do. I will kill you. The trip out felt like it took forever because we were fighting the current. I was starting to question all of my life's decisions leading up to that point. My coordination was fully compromised. Now, for anyone who hasn't heard the word bioluminescent and has wondered just what the fuck I'm talking about, bioluminescent bays, or bio-bays, are bodies of water where microscopic organisms called dinoflagellates grow in quantities large enough to produce a glow-in-the-dark effect called bioluminescence. We gradually reached the -the glow-in-the-dark portion of our voyage, and I was fascinated watching our oars and those of everyone else in our group light up with each stroke through the water. It was weird, but it was breathtaking. If I hadn't been so abjectly terrified of Chris and I accidentally capsizing, I might have enjoyed this a bit more than I was able to. The good news is we didn't tip over, and on the trip back, we were rowing with the current, so it felt like it took us half the time to get ourselves back safe on dry land. And once we were back, I drank even more painkillers. In fact, I drank a lot over the course of the next few days. The whole group did. Thankfully, on the next two evenings out, I was able to show a bit more restraint, mainly because my body started to stage a mild rebellion against what I was putting it through. Chuck was in rare form and back to his usual hilarious antics. Both nights, Chris and he and I ended up back at our hotel at the end of long days of drinking, and I began gauging when it was time to go to bed based on how many items of clothing Chuck had removed to make us uncomfortable and to get us laughing. Well, Chuck's almost naked again. Time to go to bed. Party's over. It was a lot of crazy fun, and I'm still so thankful I got to do it. But no more kayaks for me. Three, Panama City. At some point after I had been playing with Chuck for a number of years, he got booked to play a festival in Panama City, Florida. Chris Nix, who was normally the lead guitarist and band leader, was out on the road with one of the other acts he worked with and couldn't do the gig. If memory serves correctly, it was the band Tonic. I was appointed band leader in his stead, and we subbed in one of our friends to take his spot as lead guitarist, a guy named Garav Bali. There were more than several occasions over the years where we couldn't find someone to sub in as a lead guitarist, so at one point, I had actually learned all of Chris's parts on the gig and was able to flip-flop roles between lead and rhythm accordingly, depending on who we could get to fill a particular position. On this gig, Chuck was going to be flying into Panama City from somewhere else, so he asked me if I was willing to go to his business manager's office and pick up a 15-passenger van there to drive myself and the band down to Florida for the gig. There would be extra money in it for me, so I said yes without hesitation. I've always held side jobs that involve driving ever since I was younger. I've never minded it as much as some people do, 
And for me, depending on the level of traffic, it can be almost a meditative thing. Early that morning, I picked the van up and I met all the band members in the parking lot of Soundcheck, the rehearsal facility I mentioned earlier, and we set off on our way. Soundcheck was often a popular spot to hold bus call, mainly because they had plenty of extra space for people to park their vehicles for a few days and to board a tour bus or a sprinter van for a weekend's run of shows. The parking lot was generally safe, and there was even a section that was gated. A guy named Rob Mitchell, one of my dearest friends, who used to play with the band Sixpence None the Richer and many others, was our drummer. Bassist Jeff Lockerman would be handling bass duties. Jeff, also a good friend, has been the bassist for country duo Big and Rich for many years. Another of my close friends, a guy named Matt Heasley, would be playing keys. Matt is currently out with country artist John Party, but also has a lengthy resume and is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Chuck's longtime trusted front-of-house engineer, a guy named Ronnie Palmer, would be coming along to make sure we sounded pretty out front. And rounding out the group on lead guitar was yet another of my dear friends and another favorite person of mine, guitarist Garv Bali, who I mentioned earlier. If my memory serves me correctly, I believe this was Garv's first gig as a Nashville sideman. He had already been a very accomplished rock guitarist for many years prior and had just made the move to Nashville. He was going through some of the country culture shock that I experienced some years earlier in my transition from the rock world to country. Chris Nix had offered him some helpful advice, and I was also talking him through some things, as I could completely relate to what he was dealing with trying to learn a whole new vocabulary and a way of doing things. The drive to Panama City from Nashville was long but relatively painless, 7 hours 31 minutes. We would be the first act on for the day and would be using mostly backlined equipment. For those unfamiliar, backlined gear is rental gear, and it could be any piece of equipment. Guitar, bass amps, drums, keyboards, and it's provided by the festivals to make the changeover between bands quicker and to eliminate the need for musicians to travel with anything more than just their instruments. Sometimes you can file a request ahead of time for preferential pieces of gear, But more often than not, it's a veritable grab bag of stuff, and you never really know what you're going to get on any given day, or if it's going to sound good, and in some cases, if it's even going to work. Having said that, most backline companies I've dealt with have seemingly upped their game considerably. With as many times as I've backlined amps and keyboards in the last five years alone, I've never had any nightmare scenarios play out. When we arrived at the festival site, things were in a bit of a state of chaos. We were informed that Chuck's flight had been delayed, so he would be arriving late. We were told we would get a brief sound check, being that we were the first band on, but that it would have to happen very quickly. On most festivals, the stages can be incredibly cluttered with the equipment for all the bands playing on the day, all set up at the same time, one in front of the other. And if you were like us, holding the unenviable first slot of the day, you'd find yourselves, as we did, pushed up almost to the very edge of a huge stage with not much room to move. Keyboardist Matt Heasley and I were set up on stage left, and between us and the other three guys on stage right, drummer Rob Mitchell, bassist Jeff Lockerman, and guitarist Garav Bali, were not one, but two enormous drum kits, and some other gear, which, aside from limiting our ability to communicate with one another, made it nearly impossible to even see each other. This was going to be a challenge, to say the very least. There was a large thrust, or runway, off the front of the stage that we musicians affectionately refer to as an ego ramp. We would be using floor monitor wedges for the day instead of in-ear monitors, and, to make matters more challenging, 
the house monitor engineer, the guy responsible for adjusting things so that we could hear one another, was located far stage left. So far and behind so much gear that he was tucked away in a little alcove completely out of the line of sight of the entire band. Which meant if anyone needed to hear anything better during the gig or needed the level of any instrument adjusted either up or down, it was going to be impossible, if not nearly so, to get his attention to make said adjustments. We would basically be flying blind for 45 minutes on material none of us had ever really played together as a band. Not even once. Our front of house sound engineer, Ronnie Palmer, was doing the best that he could to act as stage manager when we arrived, making sure we all had what we needed before heading out front to get us a quick sound check. Chuck arrived finally, very late, and he was horrified to find out when he plugged his acoustic guitar in that he got no sound. TSA had apparently accidentally ripped the wires to the guitar pickup system out when they were inspecting it at airport security. It was broken and not able to be repaired on the spot, so Chuck had no guitar. Thankfully, the female artist who was on after us was nearby while this discovery was being made, and she generously offered her acoustic guitar to Chuck to borrow for our set. There's usually a very healthy, we're-all-in-this-together attitude among bands and crews for the most part. It's one of the reasons I love being a part of a community of musicians. I was privy to a conversation between the tech that handed the guitar that Chuck would be borrowing to Ronnie. He said, She tunes her guitar down a half step. If you need to tune it up to standard, feel free to do it, but please tune it back up before you give it back. This would come into play in a huge way during our set. There was so much hustle and bustle in trying to get us plugged in and sound checked before the doors opened that the information about the tuning of the guitar was never properly conveyed to Chuck. And if it was, he was so preoccupied with getting a monitor mix for his vocals good enough to live with, as we all were with our own respective instruments, that it was completely pushed aside and forgotten. In situations like this, I learned through the years that there is no such thing as a perfect mix. There's only, can you live with that? Most of the time, unless you're a headliner, you have to deal with whatever you get. And a lot of times, it's incredibly bad, especially on festivals. Our set started off just fine. The band guys were all sounding great, and everyone was following along and doing their thing, and we could all hear each other more or less okay. Chuck was out on the ego ramp getting up close and personal with the thousands of people that were now all packed into the front of the stage like sardines. The crowd was fresh, and they were very excited to be hearing the first band of an all-day lineup. Their energy and enthusiasm was palpable. Problems started about three-quarters of the way into the set, when Chuck began playing the opening chords of his song, Hold That Thought. This song required the use of a capo, and started with mostly Chuck and his guitar. A capo is a small device that clamps onto the neck of a guitar, changing the pitch of the open strings. There are a few different types of capos, but they all function the same way, by clamping onto the guitar's neck and holding down the strings against the fret. A capo temporarily shortens the strings on your guitar, raising the pitch of the unfretted or open strings and changing the key of open position chords. In this way, you can simply move the capo up and down the neck and play songs in different keys using the same chord shapes. The problem was, where Chuck was used to putting his capo on a guitar that was normally tuned to standard pitch was now a half step down on a guitar that was tuned down a half step, as the borrowed guitar was. It never got tuned up prior to showtime. 
So now, Chuck was out on the thrust nearly half a football field away from us, facing the crowd, starting the song in a different key from where the band knew to play it. I realized this right away. I would never claim on any day to possess perfect pitch, but I had played these songs with Chuck enough times to know when it was a half step lower. I quickly turned around to our keyboardist, Matt, and I said, I hope you can transpose on the fly, dude. Chuck is playing this a half step down. Matt nodded and was on it. I remember literally having to jump up and down, waving my hand to get the attention of the other three guys, who I could barely see through the forest of drums, amps, and other gear in between us. Bassist Jeff Lockerman got my message loud and clear and was also nodding that he knew what was happening and would adjust accordingly. When I saw Garov's face as he realized what was happening, he went completely white. Not only was this his first festival gig as a member of a country band, but now he was being asked to transpose a song on the fly with barely 30 seconds of notice. A lot of Chuck's material relied heavily on open strings that wouldn't just be a piece of cake to transpose. This would be an absolute nightmare for 99% of guitar players. I felt for him. But Garov was also a total pro, and he adjusted on the fly, and he made things happen. The funny thing about raising the pitch of a song is that it can add perceived life and energy to the way it sounds. Conversely, when you lower the pitch of a song, even if you're playing it at the exact same tempo, it can make it feel much slower and almost dirgy. That day, Hold That Thought felt like it was the slowest and most sludgy version that I'd ever played of it. It almost sounded like we were playing it in slow motion. Chuck was out on the thrust fully in the moment, fully entertaining the crowd and oblivious to all the split-second crisis management that had just occurred right behind him during the opening few bars. Next up on the set list was the big hit, Stealing Cinderella. This, too, was about to be played a half-step lower as Chuck was fully engaged in dealing with the crowd, and was so far away from us that I couldn't get his attention. He strummed a few of the opening chords off-handedly, but hadn't quite committed to starting it. I now had all the band members looking at me wide-eyed, wondering if they'd have to do another on-the-spot transposition in front of a festival crowd of thousands. I was the band leader, after all, so this was my call. I made an executive decision at this point, and just barreled ahead into the opening chords of Stealing Cinderella on my guitar in the correct key. I wasn't about to let Chuck's biggest song at that point come off as anything but the best version that we could all possibly deliver. Chuck looked back from the thrust to the main stage at that point and saw our faces. He realized at that moment what had happened. He shot me a glance that I read as, thank you. Disaster averted. After the gig, Ronnie Palmer, our trusted front-of-house guy, walked up to me, arms outstretched, and gave me a huge hug. You saved the gig today, man. I saw the whole thing happen. You have earned the title of band leader today. Thank you. No problem at all, man. All in a day's work. A really long, strange, stressful, but incredibly fun day's work. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J, M I S T E R 
M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening. <laughs>